0: Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today...
1: What we've seen in our review that we've done for over 18 months is that it's largely business as usual or a relabeling or a rebadging.
0: The annual Closing the Gap report has been handed down by the Productivity Commission and we talked to Productivity Commissioner Romley Mokak. So stay tuned for all of this and more coming up on The Wire. But first, after closed trials and countless delays, a shock verdict. China has given Australian citizen Yang Hengjun a suspended death sentence. It's one of the most severe sentences ever imposed by China on a foreign citizen charged with espionage, charges which the Australian government and Yang's family say are baseless. Olivia Bowie asked ANU research fellow Dr Benjamin Herskovich, is there a message China is trying to send in this to Australia?
2: It is almost certainly the case that He is being treated especially harshly because of his previous employment, because of his political activities, and because he has become an Australian citizen. And China has a long track record of using what is effectively hostage diplomacy to pursue its national objectives that is, seizing foreign nationals in China to deliver a political message to foreign governments. It seems like this was an expression of frustration on Beijing's part in an effort to punish an Australian for policy decisions taken by the Australian government, but China didn't like. Speaking more about Yang, Yang's health has rapidly deteriorated in recent months. Is there any potential for a sympathetic release based on his health condition? It's possible. It would seem that if his health situation does deteriorate significantly further, there may well be a case for China to be more sympathetic, purely on self-interested grounds. Having said that, I would not be surprised if the Chinese government remained entirely unmoved by his health situation. It's very possible that the Chinese government would plough on with its plans to treat him quite harshly, regardless of his health situation, unfortunately. What does this mean for the Australia-China relationship and our past efforts towards stabilisation? This sentencing of Yang Hanjun will result in a significant increase in diplomatic tension between Canberra and Beijing. Already there have been some really strong expressions of dissatisfaction by the Australian foreign minister and the Australian prime minister, and we expect that to continue. There'll be criticism of the Chinese government and criticism of this sentencing from Australia for the foreseeable future. That diplomatic dispute aside, though... The broader Australia China relationship will probably continue to improve. Beijing has indicated that it will remove the remaining restrictions on Australian goods, wine, lobster and beef that were previously being excluded from China. That will probably happen in the first few months of this year. And the political and diplomatic relationship continues to normalize with high-level diplomacy, resuming its more regular rhythm between Australia and China. And the dispute over Yang Heng-jun's sentencing probably won't impact those longer-term trends to repair the Australia-China relationship. But this sentencing will add another prickly point of tension between Beijing and Canberra and the Australian government will be pressing Beijing on this issue regularly, both privately and publicly, and that will probably frustrate Beijing. And already we've seen the Chinese government respond, criticising the way in which the Australian government has responded to the sentencing. So there'll be more diplomatic heat in the relationship, but overall the relationship will probably continue along its positive trend line. Mm. And so would you say that's your final word on how that's looking for Yang now? (sighs) Uh, My final word is that... The situation looks really grim, unfortunately. The Australian government has indicated that it will do all that it can and that it will agitate really hard on his behalf. And the Australian media and the Australian community shows no signs of leaving this case fall by the wayside. They look determined to press for his release. But Beijing will view his case in a very different light than Lei's case. And so I am not optimistic about the prospects for an early release. So I think perhaps the most optimistic, plausible scenario is that he would have his sentence commuted to life imprisonment. Albanese did state leaning towards direct communications, perhaps quiet diplomacy. Would you say that that's the right route to take? Given the experience that Australia has had with Chung Lei, it is important to do both the quiet, direct diplomacy and the public diplomacy. So what that means is that it will be absolutely critical for the prime minister himself and all of his ministers to raise Jun's case and to press it and say, this is a fundamental priority for Australia. But at the same time, if his case isn't in the media, there is a risk of it becoming less of a priority for Beijing and Beijing being less concerned about his case. So I think it needs to be a combination both of the private direct diplomacy advocating for his release, as well as the public awareness-raising diplomacy that highlights for Beijing that his plight will not be forgotten by the Australian people and that successive Australian governments and Australian publics will be calling on
0: Beijing to release him. Australian National University Research Fellow Dr Benjamin Herskovich there, speaking with Olivia Bowie. <laughs>
3: Whenever
1: I want to catch up with current affairs in Australia, I head to thewire.org.au or I follow them on Twitter. I just search for the Wire Radio or one word. And yes, they're on Facebook too.
0: The Productivity Commission has today released a damning review of Australia's progress towards the national agreement on closing the gap. The report makes various recommendations, including governments share power with Aboriginal organisations and to give Indigenous people ownership of their Indigenous data. Gerard Mazza from Engarda Media asked Dugan and Yarrou Man Productivity Commissioner Romley Mokak the role of the Productivity Commission in this agreement.
1: The National Agreement on Closing the Gap, signed in 2020, was an agreement that was made by all governments, so states and territories, the Commonwealth, as well as the Australian Local Government Association, representing 500-plus councils from across the country, as co-signatories to the Coalition of Peak Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Organisations. The agreement essentially maps out a reform process in order to try to tackle the 19-odd targets, the targets that people might be most familiar with around out-of-home care, for example, life expectancy, education, those sorts of things. So our focus as the Productivity Commission, we have our role in reviewing and providing reports on how the targets are tracking um, are written into the agreement, and this is our first review.
0: In general terms, is there sufficient progress being made in reaching that agreement?
1: In in short, um, Gerard, no. Our overall assessment is that governments have largely not fulfilled their commitments under the national agreement. And what we've found, uh, albeit there being pockets of reform and change, and we recognise that, nonetheless it's fairly piecemeal and highly dependent on, on individuals rather than the, the, the structural change, the systems change. So much of what we've seen in our review that we've done for over 18 months is that it's largely business as usual or a relabeling or a rebadging of business as usual. And what we're seeking through our recommendations is to really shine a light on areas that really do need uh, attention and reform.
0: So there are four recommendations that are made in the review. Uh, the first one is that power needs to be shared. Could you speak a little bit to that for us?
1: So it's, that's right. We've got four kind of thematic recommendations, and then a bunch of actions that sit under and or within each recommendation. The central assertion, if you like, uh, it, it's a finding, but it's basically saying that without sharing power, governments sharing power with Aboriginal, and Torres Strait Islander people and communities and organisations, there is little likelihood that the that we will see the success that we want to see in the agreement through the agreement without that sharing of power i'll go to what sits within the agreement already there's a there are a number of partnerships there are policy partnerships and there are place based partnerships and the idea is that through these partnerships getting getting everyone around the table there will be um, shared decision making that's another really key principle what the commission's saying is that if we don't take account of how power where power sits maintained or, or shared, there's very little likelihood that decisions will be jointly made. The second one, Gerard, if I could go on, yeah, um, please, is about Indigenous data. So priority reform four in the agreement speaks to the sharing of data at the regional level. And what we heard very plain, very loud, very clearly from Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and interestingly, from some within government, was that that was completely insufficient. And what we really needed to do is to have a good look at who who controls data, who makes decisions about what data has meaning and relevance, how data is managed, how data is honoured, and then you know who has access and what its use look like.
0: Let's move to the third recommendation then, which says mainstream systems and cultures need to be fundamentally rethought.
1: So we saw lots of instances, kind of characterised by this bit of an attitude around government knows, knows best. Um, that's just wrong-headedness. And it doesn't have to just be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. You know, It can be any community. So this, this is basically about valuing the knowledges of those who are living the experience. So the kind of engagements that governments have, the way in which governments think, one of the Priority reform three requires of government to identify and eliminate racism, discrimination, unconscious bias, tackle unconscious bias. And the fourth recommendation is is around accountability. Within the agreement, there is a commitment made by governments uh, to establish what's called an independent mechanism. And this mechanism, or this this, uh, body, is there to review the transformation of governments themselves. It's an accountability
0: piece. Productivity Commissioner Romley Mokak there, speaking with Engarda Media's Gerard Mazum.
4: Hey there, I'm Hamish MacDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy.
0: former ACCC Professor Alan Fells today released the report into price gouging. The report recognised that people are paying too much for many necessities. Stephen Hill asked Professor Sanjay Paul of UTS Business School whether there needs to be greater disclosure in the way in which organisations are pricing their products and services.
3: If you notice that this is not a problem in a single sector. So what the inquiry found it is a problem for multiple sectors, and they included that aviation, banking, healthcare, and healthcare, electricity, supermarkets, and food sectors, and electricity. Sorry, electric vehicles. So in all sectors, the profit margin went so high compared to that in pre-COVID level. So that's why uh, it is a big problem here we don't have that level of transparency why that price went up. For example, if you see the inflation, we know that inflation went up too. And since then, it has been gradually going down. But if you see the prices is gone up well above that inflation level, for example, food prices, why that increase is so high and that hard, all Australian households and moreover we don't know what are the reasons behind that increasing price.
4: Chief economist at the Australian Institute Dr Greg Jericho suggested there are many large companies have taken advantage of the volatility during the post-COVID transition to increase the costs of goods and services.
5: You're right one of the big factors that he really saw especially in in areas like um, groceries the grocery sector is this excuse inflation where when inflation is rising faster than normal when it's going up at about five six percent a year people kind of aren't as questioning of increasing prices of bread and milk and other things as they normally would be they just think oh well i guess that's inflation
4: professor paul of uts said that the fells report argued for more active monitoring of pricing of many goods and services
3: so if you look at the report they found many things for example Lack of market competition is one of them. But there are some other things, for example, questionable pricing. Dr
4: Jericho of the Australian Institute similarly support a pricing practice that provides more transparency for consumers and producers.
5: And so there's always this belief that we get often from the business sector of saying, oh, well, if prices go up, businesses have to pass on those costs. Otherwise, all oh, their profit margins might go down. It's like, well... Uh, workers real wages are going down, but we apparently businesses their their real profits aren't about to fall.
4: You just talked about that, that there is a lack of price transparency I've seen this with grocery prices. I believe the reserve bank groceries have gone up twenty percent since two thousand and twenty yeah. yep. are there ways in which these prices can be much better monitored?
5: Oh absolutely because at the moment they they're not the a triple C it's not their job to to look at prices their job is to look at anti-competitive behavior which generally results in high prices but it's not their their remit we don't really have any laws that actually prevent companies from charging high prices charging higher prices than they need to so long as they're not colluding in doing that they can kind of do it and the problem is with our especially with our grocery sector, as everybody knows, you know, Coles and woolies don't have to actually collude because they, they, it's all sort of set in place. You'll see things where they'll compete over everything else except for pricing each other. Like, there's never a price war.
4: Dr Paul argued that Dr Fells is correct in saying that there's currently a rockets and feathers effect with businesses eager to jack up prices but reluctant to drop prices when cost pressures drop.
3: The report found that when there are supply chain or cost issues, businesses increase their price. But when those issues are resolved, they don't reduce the price. And that is a big problem. Once they set the higher price, it tends to stay for a while. And consumers are the you know, most suffer here because they continue to spend more and cost of living pressure increases uh, because of those you know, increased prices happening for a long time. One is protected. For example, if you see that grocery code of conduct, it's currently voluntary. And this report recommended that it must be uh, mandatory to make sure that farmers are protected because farmers accuse um, supermarkets and food processors that they make too much profit from a, from their crops. But what businesses can do, at least they can disclose their profit margin in terms of the product categories, make sure that consumers are not paying more. So this is something they can do at the beginning but monitoring and regulating the prices is very important at the same time.
4: So is there any other areas that you don't think that the the report picked on that could really help um, that the government should act on in dealing with price caging?
5: Uh, Look, I think the the inquiry was was very um, solid and what it really should spark though is um you know and and professor fell sort of uh, uh, acknowledged this in his speech that you know it, it was it was quite small so yes it kind of touched on the surface but we know from previous reports previous inquiries that the the more you dig into the australian economy the more uncompetitive behavior you find you know certainly the I guess sort of sexy areas of, of grocery stores, maybe airlines, electricity, they're all pretty obvious but once you you dig in you find this in, in other sectors that most people perhaps might deal with but um, small business owners are dealing with it and when they are trying to get um, uh, some equipment and everything they find that they've really only got two suppliers and they always seem to be charging the same price and things like that. So It really should just be something that that focuses the government to act and actually not just limit it to the grocery inquiry that it's got uh, happening now under... um, uh, I've forgotten his name, sorry. um, Craig Emerson, um, but actually should become a broader and a permanent uh, body that actually is a commission on prices and competition and is actually able to investigate this.
0: Stephen Hill there with that report. Last weekend, the New South Wales State Emergency Service undertook their annual Who Let the Boats Out operation. The operation, which makes headlines each year, consists of the SES teaming up with other emergency services, such as police, fire, ambulance and marine rescue. Ben Tompkins asked Adam Jones, Senior Media Officer from the New South Wales State Emergency Services, what the operation involved.
6: Over the weekend, New South Wales SES conducted a multi-agency blood boat exercise designed to enhance flood rescue and flood support operations. We had over 200 vessels participating from nine emergency services uh, with about 750 rescue professionals and incident management staff uh, running them across the whole entire state. We had 80 different locations with boats out there practicing flood rescue so that when the community needs us, we can get out there and assist.
4: This event makes news headlines every single year. Why is this event so significant?
6: The New South Wales SES loves running this event because it it pulls all of our multi-agency partners in uh, and gets us working together all year long out in the field, helping the community. We work with our emergency service partners, uh, and this is a great chance, as well as a lot of other exercises, where we get to get out there and practice our skills uh, so we can work seamlessly together.
4: As you say, this event involves uh, cross-agency collaboration. And what are some of the findings uh, from an event like this in relation to how that cross-collaboration works?
6: In the last year, the New South Wales SES has conducted 197 flood rescues. A lot of those, we haven't just been the only agency that's come up. So we get together at these type of events and it really allows us to know the capability of our our partners, them to know us. And that means that when we arrive on these scenes, we can work seamlessly together to conduct the rescues and look after our community.
4: What are some of the skills that are taught or maintained during an event like this that could be used to reduce the harms to communities
6: during times of flood? So the participants get to get out there and practice in their vessels, manoeuvring, launching, docking vessels, search and rescue, recovering persons from water, uh, radio communication, fire drills and navigation. But it's not just our field personnel that get to get out there. It's also our incident management that really gets to, to put their uh, skills to the test with over 1,800 jobs being put through uh, in three hours through this incident management and them having to task out all those 200 uh, vessels it's a really busy time that they had and we came off really well over the weekend a lot of people have been doing it for the first time a lot of those people were already skilled in it and then our, our obviously very skilled people were acting as mentors and that really allowed everyone to get a big experience meaning that we can get out there and assist when it does actually happen.
4: And with storm season fast approaching or already upon us, uh, what advice would you give to
6: people during this time? Bloods and storms can happen uh, at any stage of the year. Storm season definitely sees a lot more coming, but we're asking the community always to be prepared, know what your risk is, depending on what it is that's coming. You know, we often have these hot summers where we get big storms in the afternoon along the coast. Uh, and we see flash flooding from that. So it's really important whether it's an afternoon storm or a big weather event that's actually hitting or whether it's a windstorm, that you know what the dangers can be. Go to newsouthwalesses.gov.au to find out. And if you need assistance, give us a call on 132500. If it's life-threatening, call 000.
0: Adam Jones, Senior Media Officer from the New South Wales State Emergency Service, speaking there with Ben Tompkins. And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcasts around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company.